Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. And when you think about bunkers, you might be apt to think of the 1950s and people building basement and backyard fallout shelters during the Cold War. But there's a second doom boom going on right now, and people aren't just burrowing to the earth to protect themselves from a nuclear bomb. My guest today traveled across four continents to explore what's driving this phenomenon and how it's manifesting itself in the modern age. His name is Bradley Garrett, and he's a professor of cultural geography and the author of Bunker, Building for the End Times. We begin our conversation with the immersive dive Bradley took into urban exploration for his PhD and how it led to his fascination with the building of underground bunkers. From there, we dip into the history of bunkers, from the ancient subterranean cities built in Turkey to the government decisions made during the Cold War that led Americans to build blast shelters in their backyards. From there, we dig into why a multi-billion dollar private bunker building industry has emerged in the present day and how it's not being driven by a specific threat, but instead a diffuse sense of dread. We discuss how bunker building breaks down into individual and communal approaches and why the latter one is ascendant. Bradley then takes on a tour of two underground communities, one a complex over 500 subterranean cement rooms in South Dakota and the other a former nuclear missile silo in Kansas, which has been turned into a luxe 15-story inverted skyscraper of survival condos complete with a swimming pool, dog park, movie theater, and grocery store. We then turn to the modern movement of backyard bunker building and how it often represents an act of resistance against the surveillance state. We also look at the culture of prepping in different countries, including the building of bug-out vehicles and fire bunkers in Australia. We enter a conversation with whether or not Bradley ultimately concluded that bunker building and survival prepping is a rational response to the state of the world and whether he became a prepper himself. After the show's over, check out the show notes at awim.is slash bunker. All right, Bradley Garrett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here. So you got a new book out, Bunker, Building for the End Times. And this is a I don't know, an anthropology, a cultural exploration of the the culture of building bunkers and prepping. Before we get to that, let's talk about your background, because that led into this book. You yourself, you're an urban explorer, but you're also a cultural geographer. For those who aren't familiar with urban exploration, what is it? And then how did you tie that into your academic career? Uh, well, so cultural geography isn't a, a huge sub-discipline in the United States, but it's it's essentially a cross-section between geography and anthropology. So I find interesting groups of people who are who are kind of redefining the spaces around them. And uh, I did my PhD with these urban explorers who were sneaking into off-limits spaces and cities. They were sneaking into abandoned buildings, construction sites, infrastructural systems. And they had this kind of really fascinating philosophy where they told me that they saw the city as sort of like a like an operating system, right? It's it's built to force people to function in a particular way, right? It forces you to to move through the city in a certain way, to interact with it in a certain way. And what they were doing, I, I eventually came to call place hacking because it was kind of like they were hacking the operating system of the city. They were trying to, you know, wiggle into the guts and see how things work. And their curiosity was just overwhelming. And I ended up spending 10 years with these explorers sneaking into hundreds of off-limits locations all over the world. And I uh, saw some some pretty incredible things. And uh, that that ended up being my my first book, Explore Everything, Place Hacking the City. What was the most incredible thing you came across during that uh, 10 years? Well, there's so much. Um, so we went on this, we went on this uh, 10-day road trip around Europe and snuck into about 100 buildings. And at the end of it, we had we had some intel that there was a, a metro system in Antwerp in Belgium that was they started constructing in the 1980s, I believe, and they never finished it. And we looked on Google Earth, and there was a 
there was a massive hole that you could see from Google Earth. And so we went out about 3 a.m. with some ropes and we rappelled into the hole. And uh, we ended up dropping down about 100 feet in onto a train platform. And we flicked on the light switch and all the lights came on in this metro system. So it's, um, imagine this, there's, there's about, I don't know, seven, eight miles of tunnel system, but the tracks were never laid. The platforms are there, but the trains were never brought in. And we walked the entire thing and thought at one point, actually, that we were stuck in there because the ascenders that we had to get back up the ropes got jammed. Uh, <laughs> and luckily, we found a we found a fire exit, but it, it got it got a bit hairy there for a minute. We thought we were going to have to call the fire department or something. And in urban exploration, it's like that gray area. It's usually illegal, sometimes not, but typically illegal. Did you ever get in trouble for doing this stuff? You know, I like I, I, I've been caught a handful of times, and more often than not, it's a it's a security guard that catches you, not a police officer. And you know, they don't really want to let the people that they work for know that they found like four people with backpacks and cameras wandering around and wherever, you know? So usually they'll just send you on your way. We did have one instance where the police were called. We were on top of a a roof in London taking photos of the city and we heard all these sirens. We were like, oh, something's going on down there. And we looked over (laughs) the edge of the building and they they had surrounded the building. (laughs) And so they obviously were there for us and they were going to bring in dogs. There was no doubt about it. So we just, we went down hands up, you know, and said, Hey, we're photographers, you know, we're not doing anything nefarious. And one of the police officers said, you know, he's like, well, you're not photographers. Let me, let me see your camera. So we start flipping through the photos and he said, wow, these photos are, these are fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) He was actually really kind of interested in what we were doing, but you know, eventually he said, oh, look, I'll, I'll let you guys go, but you need to delete all those photos because obviously the property owner is not very happy about the prospect of you releasing those online and everyone realizing that their their security is lax. So, yeah, it's, it is it is a gray area in that not a lot of people, most of the time people don't know that we're there, right, until the photos are posted. And sometimes people really don't care at all. But every once in a while, you know, we get into something that we, it's like super sensitive state infrastructure and then you can end up in some trouble and eventually we did have a uh, a police investigation launched against us because we were sneaking into all the abandoned metro stations in the london tube and the the british transport police who are in charge of security there were really not happy that we were getting away with that so they they eventually took down our doors with battering rams and confiscated all of our equipment and sent us to court and the court threw out the charges, but we ended up being on bail for two years. They took my passport, so I got I got stuck in the UK for two years awaiting trial. And um, you know, by the time we actually got to trial, I felt like I, I had already served the sentence for what we were doing. All right, so urban exploration—it's sort of it's a subversive subculture, right? Because you're doing things that are, you know, you're going places where you shouldn't go, and your your work with urban exploration led you to exploring the cultures of bunkers, prepping, and survivalism. How did those two worlds connect or collide? Well, one one of the places, so we we ended up finding all these Cold War bunkers that were underneath London, and obviously they were they were built for a nuclear attack on the Capitol and they were never used. And I mean, some of them, they were fascinating. They still had supplies in them. They still had food and water, you know, signage to direct people where to go. And you could kind of imagine 
people being down there and thinking about when they're going to emerge from this bunker into the post-apocalyptic world, right? Like imagine popping the the hatch to that bunker and you emerge into this like blast stricken city that's totally irradiated. And I I kept, I kept running through those, (laughs) those fantasies in my head about, you know, these bunkers that were never used. And then one of the bunkers that we had explored called Burlington. It's in Wiltshire, just outside of London. It's a massive subterranean secret city. There's about 60 miles of roads down there, radio broadcasting facilities, a library that you would need to reconstruct the government in the event of nuclear war. A totally fascinating place. Well, this bunker, the government obviously didn't know what to do with it after the uh, end of the Cold War, and so they put it up for sale. And one of the potential buyers was a California real estate developer, called Robert Vecino. And I just called Robert and said, what do you want to do with this thing? And he he outlined for me this incredible scenario where, you know, that kind of mirrored what the government had planned to do, but he was going to do it for private individuals. He wanted to purchase the bunker and then kit it out for about 300 people. And the idea was that, you know, his paying clients would be able to retreat into that bunker wait out some sort of calamity and then emerge into the post-apocalyptic world. And that was the beginning of my my research with preppers. And and I've spent the past three years traveling to four continents and interviewing more than a hundred people, seeing the the bunkers that they're building and talking to them about the apprehensions that they have about this kind of uncertain future that we, we all seem to be headed into. Well, and when we think of bunkers, we typically think of it as like a relatively modern thing, right? It's like coming across like the, the abandoned Cold War bunker because everyone was freaked out there was going to be nuclear annihilation. But you highlight the fact at the beginning of the book that humans have been building bunkers like for millennia. So what are some examples of ancient bunkers that we, we know about? Well, it's, it's obviously hard to trace back, you know, some kind of uh, original bunker because human beings would have been moving into caves where they they would have been caching supplies and stockpiling things and probably building up some sort of defenses. But in terms of of large-scale communal bunkers, we can actually uh, trace those back 2,000 years to central Anatolia, what is now Turkey. And if anyone ever gets a chance to to, to go out, I mean, who knows when we're going to travel again, but if anyone gets a chance to go to Istanbul, you can actually jump on a bus to Cappadocia and see some of these subterranean cities. One of them that was constructed was first carved out by the by the Hittites in 530 BCE, I think. And eventually they had room underground for 20,000 people. These, you know, so again, these are huge subterranean cities. They would have had livestock down there, stockpiled supplies. And, you know, this was a space of protection. You know, the underground has always been for human beings a place where we protect what is most important to us. It's it's space for defense. It's also where we bury the things that we're scared of. You know, we've got long associations with cultural associations with the underground and the underworld. You know, so it's a place of of fear, but also a place of safety. And that juxtaposition, you know, flows through over the next 2,000 years. By the time we get to World War II and the Cold War, you know, bunkers are being built en masse all over the world. You know, they they are a reflection of our past. You know, they're a reflection of our speculative anxieties about all the things that could go wrong in the world. And and for me, that feels like they're they're a very human space. You know, human beings are unique in their ability to 
speculate about things that might happen and prepare for those things. Well, let's talk about, so we, we've been building bunkers for a long time in different forms, but yeah, but it really took off in the 20th century because we all know it's like the threat of nuclear annihilation. That was the thing. Everyone started building bunkers, government started building bunkers, but you also explore what I, I didn't know about this decisions that U.S. leaders made in the 1940s, 1950s that influenced how bunker building was approached in the United States. So what decisions did they make that influenced and like what happened in America that differed in other countries? So there was a, a team of nuclear strategists that were kind of philosophers or fascinating people that were trying to think through the, the psychological, ethical, moral, social, political implications of nuclear war. And one of those strategists was called Herman Kahn. He worked for the Rand Corporation. And Kahn came up with an estimate, which he supplied to the government to create blast shelters for every American. So a blast shelter is different than a fallout shelter, right? A fallout shelter is, it, it couldn't take a bomb hit, right? But you could hide in there for a couple of weeks and then reemerge when the radiation levels are low. So Khan, Khan said that's not sufficient. What we need is blast shelters for every American. And the estimate that he submitted, uh, I think, to the Eisenhower administration, were essentially the, <laughs> it was essentially our, our uh, gross domestic product for a year. It was an uh, astronomical sum of money. So, the Eisenhower administration made the decision eventually to spend, I think, one one thousandth of that on basically locating places that could be used as fallout shelters, like parking garages, for instance. And every once in a while, when you're traveling around, you'll see these small signs that have the, the radiation symbol on them and they say fallout shelter. Those are, those are from the Cold War. But essentially what happened is that, is that in the background, the government was building bunkers for themselves. So they were the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia, for instance. They started building a massive bunker under there. Obviously, the White House has a bunker under it. They started building large-scale underground government facilities at NORAD, Raven Rock. And we didn't realize that, you know, the general public didn't realize that this had happened until after the Cold War. And I think there was a real sense of betrayal because in other parts of the world, the government did, did build those blast shelters for, for every human being. In Switzerland, for instance, they've got space for 110% of the population, which I find hilarious. And, I'm, and I guess they just built some extra space in, ca in case tourists are in town or whatever. You know, it's a very different philosophy and it's, it draws a, a sharp contrast between the kind of small state, you know, rugged individualism, take care of yourself ethos that we have here in the United States you know, that sits in stark contrast with, with places in Scandinavia and in Europe and even in the Soviet Union where they did a much better job of building protection for everyone, which, which at the end of the day wasn't needed, of course. You know, these places look like architectural follies to us now. They were never used for their intended purposes. But if that nuclear war had unfolded in the way that it was expected it might, the United States would have been in a terrible situation. Well, and like most things, if the, the state's not going to provide something, the private sector will step in and provide a service that people want. And so you saw, you tie like this too, in the 50s, private companies or even magazines, publications, giving families, people instructions on how to build their own blast shelter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sears was in on it. There were a number of companies that were that were selling these kind of backyard fallout shelters. Social scientists call this the the doom boom. This kind of multi million dollar industry that emerged almost overnight in response to the nuclear threat, and and the clear government mandate 
pushing the burden of preparation on individuals. There was actually a famous speech that Kennedy gave in 1961 where he said, essentially, it was the responsibility of every American to make their own preparations for nuclear war. And and so, yeah, a private market emerged, as it always will, to serve those needs. And what we're seeing right now around the world, and what, what my book is primarily about, is this second doom boom. We're, we're back in a moment where people feel incredibly uneasy about not just nuclear war, but the possibility of you know artificial intelligence running rampant, or an asteroid slamming into the Earth, or you know, political unrest, you know, Civil War 2.0 breaking out. And and so people are going to these bunker builders in droves and the private industry is emerging to meet those demands again. And now we're looking at a, a multi-billion dollar industry, which is serving up, according to my most recent estimates, almost 12 million Americans who are actively prepping. Well, okay. So let's talk about the the state of bunker building today and like what's driving it, like the psychology of it. So in times past, ancient times, they were probably bunkering for war. In the fifties, they were people were bunkering because they're afraid there's going to be a nuke drop near them, so they had to be ready for that. And you just talk, highlight a whole bunch of things that the people you talk to, you know, spouted off on the reason why they were building a bunker where they were prepping. And what's interesting about all these different things, whether it's AI, political unrest, you know, nuclear stuff still on the table, is that it's not like a specific fear. You said it's more like instead of people are just sort of dread, they're just dreading the future. So how what's the, what do you think is the difference between fear and dread? And like, why do you think dread is like a big driving cause of the bunker building? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. I spent inordinate amount of time trying to figure out the difference between anxiety, dread, and fear as I was working through this book, because you're right, it's, you know, fear, fear has an object, you know, it's, it's concrete. It's, you can, you can pinpoint the thing that you fear, whereas dread is more amorphous or anxiety is more amorphous as well, right? It's, you're feeling a sense of dread about a general sense. It's a general sense of unease. It's kind of hard to put parameters around. And a lot of the people, a lot of the preppers that I spoke to for this book, they didn't have a specific thing that they were prepping for. They were prepping for a range of calamities and that it, it affects the way that you build, you know, because if you're, if you're putting a, uh, an air filter on your bunker, for instance, you make sure that it, it can filter out nuclear, biological and chemical contaminants. If you're worried about an electromagnetic pulse, you know, that, that could be produced from a, a coronal mass ejection from the sun or, potentially the detonation of a nuclear weapon high in the atmosphere that would wipe out electrical systems, then you you harden for that, right? You get hardened solar panels, battery backups, you you shield everything. And if you interpret the architecture of these bunker builders who are, you know, who are all around us building these communities in that way, you start to see the architecture of dread. You start to see that people are building for they're building for the unknown. And we can see that in, in other points in the past too. One of my favorite examples is in Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula, just at the end of the, the post-classic Maya era when the Spanish had come over and brought disease with them. The Maya didn't know what where these diseases were coming from. And so they started building walls. They'd never built walls before around their settlements. And so you get these kind of you know beautiful pyramids that have been there for thousands of years. And then suddenly they start building these, these kind of a really haphazard 
walls around the places that they're residing to keep out the virus, to keep out the diseases that they can't see because they don't know where they're coming from. The architecture of dread that I'm seeing now that I, that I explore in this book, you know, feels to me like a, like a similar, you know, like it's mirroring that history. You know, that if we were to look back at this a hundred years from now, it tells a story about our collective sense of unease. And that's, that's essentially what the book is about. Yeah. So it sounds like, it sounds like, I mean, sure, humans have experienced dread throughout you know, history, but it sounds like dread is a very modern phenomenon because we, we know, we know so many possible unknowns. And so you have to like prepare for all of them and that's pretty much impossible to do. Well, you know, like we all have this sense that watching the news makes us really depressed because you, you learn about things that you don't necessarily need to know about, but it's depressing to know them anyway. If you had no idea that an asteroid was coming to hit the earth, you wouldn't care. It would just happen and you'd be dead, right? right. But now, of course, we would have, we would have information about that. We would, be, we would all be watching it approaching on the news and, and you know, going through. It'd be a live stream, right? It'd be right. a live stream, yeah, completely. But it's kind of, you know, we're just saturated with this, with this drip feed of dread, you know, bad news from every corner of the world, 24 hours a day. And we're also, I think this is really important, we're also confronting more existential threats than we ever have in history. So an existential threat meaning something that could actually exterminate our entire species. Most of the existential threats that we face are things that we've created. And so that's kind of an interesting thing that we're putting ourselves through all of these psychological machinations because of situations that we've created. We created nuclear weapons. You know, we, we are creating the on- automation that may put us out of jobs. We're creating the artificial intelligence that may decide that we're in the way of its own advancement and wipe us out. You know, all, all of these things are issues that, that, you know, some people are concerned about and are running through in their heads all the time. And that's, that's absolutely affecting our psychology. It's affecting our behavior. It's affecting our social systems, our social fabric. You know, all of these things are being drastically affected. And it's, this is a unique point in human history. There's never been another time when we face such uh, myriad existential threats. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. 
Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. So as you explore different companies building bunkers for people, what I found there's like basically two general approaches on how in the in this bunker building world and how to do it. There's a communal approach where you build bunkers where a whole bunch of people live together. And then there's like the rugged individualist where everyone has like sort of like the 1950s in America model. Like everyone has their own bunker in their backyard that they can go to. When you talk to people who in these two camps, like why would did you ever get a feel like why one person would be drawn to one? approach or the other? Yeah, it was really interesting. The The backyard bunker builders would tell me that, you know, the problem is other people. And so you, you can't trust people. You don't know who you're going to end up in that bunker community with. And the people who are moving into communities were saying, you're never going to survive on your own. 
you know, you need a community of people with complementary skills that can help people get through things. So it is very much a, a breakdown between, you know, are we creating a new tribe to make it through together? Or is it, or is it, you know, every every man for himself? And the the Cold War reaction to the existential threat of nuclear war was definitely a, you know, I'm gonna protect myself and my family and build a bunker in my backyard and I'm gonna protect that bunker from my neighbors. It's interesting to me that we're now seeing I, I would say the the majority of prepper communities or prepper developments are communities now. They're, they're people who are moving in together and seeking not just safety in a material defensive sense, right? But, but also seeking community. People are kind of desperate to find connection again. And so the, the building of the bunker and the stockpiling of it and learning about renewable technologies and and all of that is part of the process of building a new community of, of like-minded people that you might survive with. So let's talk about one of these companies who, who's trying to build communities of bunkers. And it's the first one uh, is the Vivos Group. Tell us about them and what's their approach and what are sort of the people who are buying space from them? Well, so just to be clear, the Vivos Group is is Robert Vecino. He's the guy who is going to buy that bunker in England that initially got me got me into this project. And when I spoke to him, he was just in the process of acquiring these bunkers in South Dakota from the U.S. government. These are World War II bunkers. They were built originally to store ordnance, so they were they were full of bombs, which is wonderfully ironic that you would build a bunker to protect bombs, and now they're protecting people. <laughs> but Robert's his idea was that he would purchase this bunker field. There's 575 semi-subterranean concrete bunkers there that stretch over an area about three quarters the size of Manhattan. It's an absolutely huge facility. And his idea was that he would buy this this facility and then sell off the individual bunkers. Initially, they were 25 grand. I think he's now in phase two. So it's, it's literally like a, like a real estate development, you know, phase one sold out. Now he's selling phase two and phase two is going for, for 35,000. And I was there, I was there on day one. I met the first four preppers that moved into the place. There was Milton. He was, uh, he worked for the Chicago VA as an IT manager. He eventually quit his job and moved into the bunker full time. Mark, an engineer from Minnesota, Tom, who's working in, in biotech in Atlanta, a totally fascinating community of, of people from very different backgrounds who came there with their families and they were interested in, in buying into this community and building something new. And we're about, I think, three years on now from my first visit to that place. And I've, I've gone back periodically to check in with everyone and, and it's, it's blooming. I mean, it's kind of incredible. There's, there must be 30 or 40 families and individuals living there now. And it's starting to look like a, like a typical American suburban cul-de-sac, you know, with white picket fences and American flags hanging over the blast doors. At the beginning of the, the coronavirus pandemic, I, I sent them a message to ask if they were all going to be retreating to their bunkers. And, and they said, yep, we're all here. No one's infected. Everyone's safe. No one's coming in or out. We've got all the supplies we need. And they were happily barbecuing while the rest of us were panic shopping for toilet paper. And so just to be clear, some of the people who own these bunkers plan to come to these bunkers whenever there's an emergency, but there's some people who live there full-time already. But these bunkers, they're just basically little cement rooms, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, you could fit an 18-wheeler in there. 
you know, they're about that size. But the but the blast door, you couldn't actually get a vehicle through the blast door, which are incredibly heavy. Or right, so the the Vivos group, they seem to be offering a very like basic, you know, relatively affordable bunker option. Like you get a you get the cement room, and then you it's up to you to deck it out how you want. But then you go visit this company who is trying to build like a community of like a, a luxe bunker for like high net worth individuals. Let's talk about this. It's being built in an abandoned missile silo. So this is the other, this is another irony, right? So we're, we're turning <laughs> yeah. these, uh, we're turning things that were once housing missiles with that had uh, warheads on them. Uh, now we're going to go to them for safety. Tell us about this company and what they're doing and who's, who's the, who are the type of people who are joining this community? Yeah, this guy is called Larry Hall. He's a, another property developer based in Kansas. And he purchased uh, an Atlas F nuclear missile silo from the U.S. government for $300,000 and then spent $10 million of his own money turning this into a 15-story inverted skyscraper. So there's there's condos inside this missile silo now. And when you take you get in the elevator and it takes you down instead of up and you descend into the building and he's selling half floor condos for 1.5 million full floor condos for 3 million and the incredible thing about this facility well, we'll get into the technical details but the the most incredible thing about it is that he sold out within the first year he sold every single condo in there and i think made about 10 million in profits which he's now using to build a second one he bought another one from the federal government so you could eventually imagine this kind of archipelago of subterranean citadels stretching across Kansas. I mean, in a, in, a, in a landscape that's almost devoid of topography, you know, the only hills that you see are the mounds sitting on top of the, the bunkers. But this could withstand a, a nuclear warhead. You know, you could drop it right on this bunker and it would survive. They've got nuclear biological chemical air filters, volcanic ash scrubbers, reverse osmosis, water filtration systems. I think he has three different power systems. He's got solar, wind, and diesel generators as a backup, and he's got diesel fuel for five years. So they they can run totally off the grid inside this bunker. And he's also got a lot of amenities down there, a rock climbing wall, a dog park, swimming pool, library, movie (laughs) theater. It's, uh, you know, I, I was down there for a day and I could quite happily stay down there for three months. I actually offered to, to finish my book in the bunker and he, he kicked me out. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it's a, they, they've even got a shooting range down there. And when wow. I asked him about all of those, you know, luxuries, he said, he said, these aren't luxuries. He said, if you're going to lock people inside a bunker and tell them that they can't leave because it's in their own best interest. And this is the service they paid for is we're going to protect them from what's happening outside of the bunker. You've got to keep those people distracted. You know, his his goal was to to have people feel a sense after they had gone into lockdown that they were continuing life as they had been as much as possible. So he told me he wanted it to function like a cruise ship. And there's an interesting, uh, all of the bunker builders that I spoke to were kind of obsessed with time. Like they they had a they had a number that they wanted to hit, like three months, one year five years, and they would build the bunkers for that time. So this goes back to what we were talking about. You know, you don't build for a a specific threat. You build for a time period. And so Larry Hall told me, you know, I've built this thing for five years. And in those five years, there's going to be rotating jobs. 
We're going to make sure that everyone knows how to do everything in this bunker, but we're also going to make sure that people are keeping themselves entertained, that things are kept under control. They had a grocery store in there, and he said, we we insist that everyone comes grocery shopping every three days just so that they see each other. You know, We don't want anyone taking all the food and locking themselves in their room. He put a great deal of thought into maintaining psychological and, and social equilibrium inside the bunker. However... I think this is a really important point in contrast to South Dakota, where all of those residents were were building together, talking together, like they've already built a community. In contrast to that, the people who had bought space in Larry Hall's bunker, who obviously are, are millionaires and billionaires that can afford to, to spend that much money, cash, by the way, for these bunkers, they had never lived in it. So and they don't know each other. So you you really have no idea who you're going to end up locked in this bunker with for five years. And I, I guess that's, you know, that's the beginning of the uh, fictional horror story that you could write about the survival condo. Right. It sounds like a Twilight Zone episode or like a 1950s existential novel, like by Sartre or Camus or something. That's the, that's the setup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, what did Sartre said, hell is other people. Right. You know, that's his play, No Exit, is just three people stuck in a, stuck in a room. It's like the worst possible thing you can imagine. All right, so we got that luck. So these are these are uh, companies who are catering towards helping people build communities or live together, building bunkers and lots of people together. But then there's still companies out there who are catering to people who just want a bunker in their backyard. And so these people, they say they just want to take care of themselves. And it seems like it's not just they don't want to like they, they think other people are the problem. But it seems like I got the hunch from reading your book that these folks also like building a bunk in their backyard was a, sort of an act of rebellion, or they're trying to. It was about privacy. Like they didn't want the government or like Amazon or Google to know they had this thing in their backyard. Yeah, so the, I guess that's one of the arguments of the of the backyard builders, as they would say that these communities, whether it's survival condo or X Point or wherever, they those communities are known. You know, they are on the map, and they feel that those communities are going to become a target if things go rapidly downhill. And so these backyard builders, you know, are buying bunkers. Often they're having them delivered in the middle of the night and having them buried in their backyards when no one's looking. And uh, for a lot of them, they're concerned about surveillance, tracking. They're worried about aerial imagery, satellites, the phone in their pockets, <laughs> which are tracking their every movements. And and so the, the bunker for them is a is kind of like the ultimate man cave, right? It's like where you can hide, your phone doesn't work, no one knows that it's there if you've done a good job hiding it. And yeah, for many of them, they they explained it to me as an act of resistance against the surveillance state. You know, they didn't want people, they wanted to have something that was that was theirs and that, that was secret and a secret they didn't need to share with anyone. And I, it feels to me like that is now the primary reason for building backyard bunkers. You know, no one is under the illusion that you're going to be able to survive for, you know, three months in this bunker. I mean, particularly after, you know, we all now suffered the self-isolation of dealing with the pandemic. And we know how we all start to crack, you know, just six weeks in. I mean, it's just insufferable. You know, you want to get outside, you want to see people and talk to people. So no no one's under the illusion that they're going to be able to spend months or years in their backyard bunker, but it does give them a place, you know, it's like a, it's like a storm shelter, right? It gives them a place where they could, they could go down for two or three days and make it through a, an event. And in the meantime, they can use it as a kind of, you know, secret space to work on their own projects without being, 
without being tracked and surveilled. And these things, these backyard bunkers, they're usually just like a corrugated pipe, right? Like a big giant thing you put in the ground and you put dirt over it. Yeah. So there's two major manufacturers. The first is is Atlas Shelters and the second is Rising S. And I spent time in both of their factories and they've got totally different methods. Atlas S does these these circular corrugated iron backyard shelters. And then Rising S does these big blocky steel shelters that almost look like like Legos, like you could piece them together. So if you if you wanted a bigger bunker, you could just kind of weld another one onto it and make build a longer one. And these guys are hilarious. They are they are at war with each other on social media, on YouTube, just trash talking each other, constantly, you know, trying to find the other guy's bunker that has collapsed, you know, to prove that they're a fraud. I mean, it's it's a they should they should make a reality TV show about these guys. I bet there will be something. <laughs> so we've been talking about bunker building in the United States, and we typically think of prepping and survivalism as sort of an American phenomenon. But you visited other countries where there's also prepping cultures. Any any countries stood out to you in particular? Like how is it different from the United States? Well, it's so in in Europe, for instance, people don't have the space that we have, and so you know, prepping for them often was having an escape plan, stockpiling a bit of extra food. I mean, I, I saw people stuffing things under their beds, uh, you know, absolutely filling every nook and cranny <laughs> in, in their tiny apartments that they could to be better prepared. And then I went to, I went to Thailand because there was a Canadian who had moved to Thailand to build this, what he, he called it an eco-fortress. It was kind of, it was like a, like a block citadel that he had built in an abandoned orchard in uh, just outside of Chiang Mai, uh, is the the most bizarre location to build a bunker that I can imagine in this in this tiny village. But his idea was that it would he wanted to build this kind of off grid second home that was a bunker. I mean, it had a nuclear fallout shelter and man traps and uh, you know CCTV systems. There are no windows on the bottom, so it's incredibly difficult to a sale. All of the windows are bulletproof, but he went, he didn't want it to feel like a bunker. So it had this, the middle of the building was an open atrium and light would flood through into the, the center of the building down to the swimming pool. He was growing vines of passion fruit along the walls. I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful location. And then he took me up to the roof where he had, he had a hatch that he could lock from the roof. So if someone actually got into the building he could get onto the roof and lock the hatch, and that would be his his final holdout. And uh, he was showing me his solar panel array on the roof, and I, I looked across the the jungle that was behind his bunker, and there was a, a Buddhist wat there, and there's this like twenty foot tall gold Buddha that was emerging from the jungle, staring at this doomsday bunker that a Canadian had built in the middle of the jungle. It was just one of those moments that is just, I mean, there were a lot of surreal moments in the course of writing this book, but I think that that really takes the cake in terms of just being utterly shocked by people's ambition and audacity in building these kinds of spaces. And that story, actually, this, this didn't make it into the book because it happened after I finished, after we published, but that story has a really unfortunate ending Augie, the guy who had built that, he worked on oil rigs. That's how he made his money. And he was actually on an oil rig when the pandemic hit. And he got stuck 
on the rig for two months, I think, and then stuck for another two months because Thailand wouldn't let him in because he didn't have a Thai passport. And so his wife and kid were were inside his like 80% finished bunker while he got trapped kind of floating around the world in the midst of the pandemic, precisely the thing that he had been building the bunker for. Man. So, I mean, it, besides Thailand, you went to Australia and I thought that was interesting. The prepping culture in Australia, they're prepping, their main concern is like wildfires. That was like the wildfires they had a few years ago. That really kicked off prepping in, in Australia. Yeah. They had terrible fires in Victoria. Hundreds of people died or burned to death. I mean, it was a really tragic situation. And of course the bushfires have been escalating every year. Last year, essentially the entire continent was on fire. I think over a billion animals died in those wildfires. And so people there, they respond to that in two ways. And the, and you'll find this is common with preppers that they, they either want to bug in or bug out, right? <laughs> do you, do you hunker down and stay where you are to make it through things? Or do you pack up a rig, four-wheel drive, mobile bunker, and then take off and and get out of harm's way. So I met a lot of Australians that had built these like incredible four-wheel drive vehicles with tents on top of them and every supply you could possibly imagine towed in trailers. Those were those are pretty pretty cool to watch people deploy in the middle of the bush, you know, a, a hundred miles from anything, and they're like doing their laundry on a solar panel, you know. <laughs> but then there were also people who were buying they're called fire bunkers for, for about 25 grand. You can have someone put a bunker in your backyard, just like those, those nuclear fallout shelters people were building during the cold war. But these are, they're, they're sealed, they're airtight. So if you've got a fire that's raging through, you can get into this bunker and lock the hatch and, and it's fireproof. And you've got an hour or two of oxygen in there. And then a couple of backup tanks, if you need to go onto those. And essentially you just let the, let the fire pass over you. And uh, the idea is, you know, you might lose your property, but you won't lose your life. And people, the one of the guys that I talked to who was building these bunkers said he was absolutely overwhelmed. I mean, he's got like, the backlog goes on for years for projects. So if anyone wants to make some serious money, move to Australia and go open a, a fire bunker company. Well, you mentioned bugging out. And so these in Australia, they're building these rigs, but there's like, there's a market in the United States for building what's called bug out vehicles. And they look like like uh, war rigs from you know some apocalyptic movie. I mean, like, so what are the, I mean, are, are are these are these bug out vehicles? Are they designed to get you somewhere, or are they just designed where you can like live in it too? It's a bit of both. So I, I visited these guys in uh, Utah that started buying Humvees from the U.S. military. And essentially, when you buy it from the military, you can get them with really low miles because sometimes they just use them to drive around a base or whatever. And but before they sell them, they take the they take the armor off of them. And so these guys were started making armor kits and they would buy the vehicles from the government, put the armor back on them and then sell them on the private market. So, again, you know, private industry stepping in to do what government isn't doing because you can't you know, you can't buy these vehicles commercially. And these guys made it very clear that they didn't have any faith in FEMA, for instance, to show up on time and ready to go in the case of an emergency. So they just started building their own vehicles. And the vehicles got more and more extreme. Eventually, they started putting gun turrets on top of them. They've got these kind of armored RVs, six-wheel drive RVs with beds and showers in them. And some of those are stocked with supplies as well. So you could essentially live out of it. And what they told me, so they 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 started 
going into disasters. And they, they told me that they never intended to build these vehicles to escape from something. They built these vehicles to assist. So they, again, they were stepping in where the government, they felt the government wasn't doing their job. And they had gone into a couple of disasters. Like there was some flooding in Wimberley, Texas, a couple of years ago. And they went into the flood zone and, and were actually rescuing people. And they had a couple of encounters with FEMA where FEMA told them to, to, to stop helping, which is kind of incredible because they felt like they were doing a, a public service almost. But they've, they've now created a disaster relief crew. And they've got people on call all over the country who have bought these vehicles. And when disaster strikes somewhere, they will call people in the local area who they know have the vehicles and are equipped to help, and they'll send them into the the uh, disaster zone. Well, yeah, this is interesting because you talk about different approaches. Like, there's different like subcultures of prepping within the larger prepping culture, and these guys in U- are in Utah. They're Mormon. And it seemed like you were, you went to Utah to also talk to Mormons because Mormons they do a lot of prepping they got food storage and whatnot, and you find you saw like a subtle difference in how what their approach was to say someone in some other part of the United States. Yeah, you know, I mean, getting access to some of these facilities like the Survival Condo, the the uh, subterranean skyscraper in Kansas, it took me over a year. You know, I had to just I had to just badger the hell out of him to to be able to get access to that. When I went to Utah, the Mormons just let me into everything. They were they're <laughs> you know they're the the easiest people to do field work with. I would roll up to uh, these factories where they were they were producing oats, pasta, you know, long term food storage that they were putting in twenty five year shelf life cans, and those end up in in people's basements all around Salt Lake City, all around Utah. You know, they would just let me into the factory, let me uh, see everything, volunteer on the line if I wanted to. And then eventually I started going to people's houses and seeing their basements and talking to them about their the preparations they'd made. And they all made it very clear that the since the Cold War, the church has asked them to prep. They've asked these people to set aside at least three months worth of food. And the idea was was never that that food was to sustain themselves or their families solely. It was about being able to pool those resources in the event of a disaster and make sure that everyone in the church could make it through. So again, a a community ethos. And there's another interesting connection there because one of the, I guess, prophets of the church that was on the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Ezra Taft Benson, he was one of those people that was encouraging Mormon families to prep during the Cold War. And he also ended up advising the I think it was the Eisenhower administration on... Yeah, he was the Secretary of Agriculture. Secretary of Agriculture, right. And and uh, so the idea that the government would encourage everyday citizens to make their own preparations, I think that actually came from him. So it, came, it actually came from the Mormon church. So we, when you talk to these people, they, a lot of their focus is like on building the bunker and preparing and being safe whenever, whatever event they're preparing for happens. But when you talk to these people, like, did they have like, do you get an idea they had a plan of what they're going to do after, like when they had to leave the bunker? <laughs> yeah, the, the emergence into the post-apocalyptic world. I, I you know, a lot of, um, a lot of these preppers, and particularly the bunker builders who I who I call the dread merchants in the book you know it's it's in their interest to stoke people's fears it's in their interest to to make people feel that the world is a terrible place and that we're we're headed down the wrong track because all of that's going to help sales but when i would ask them well, what, you know what is the plan on the other side 
then it would turn into this total fiction very often where it's like, you know, well, it's, you know, a a large percentage of the population is going to be gone. There's going to be all this land. The economy is going to boom. There's going to be plentiful resources. So it's this kind of fantasy that we see playing out in post-apocalyptic films and literature, right? I mean, we all kind of like to think about the idea of of being in a world that's still full of stuff, like full, you know, grocery stores are packed, but there's no one there. You know, it's the kind of zombie narrative and you can just grab whatever you want and kind of make your own way through the world. Americans love those, those narratives, you know, that they'll just be totally on their own. But realistically, I didn't hear people talking about what they were going to do, what the plan was, how would they rebuild, you know, how would how would they find community again? And I think that that's one of the the major blind spots in all of these scenarios. I have to say that over after spending years with them, I I became convinced that you know, we are in a unique point in human history. We do face more threats than we ever have in the past. The possibility of things going wrong is in front of us all the time because of the way we've built our, our society, you know, it's incredibly fragile, the infrastructural supply lines and, and global trade that we depend on the technology that we depend on now, it's, it's all put us in a, in a very fragile position. But, you know, I didn't hear a lot of people telling me what the alternative was. No, no one wants to go back to some, you know, there's not some Edenic time in the past that people want to return to. And they're fantasizing about this future where things will be different because they're frustrated with the present, but they're not necessarily telling me what that future is going to be. Well, and so, I mean, I think it's interesting, sort of the conclusion that I got from the book was, so we typically in the broader culture, people look at people who build bunkers, the prepping community, sort of, they're out there, right? It's like, it's a subculture, kind of weird, maybe a little bit crazy, but I got the idea that after spending so much time with these guys and talking, you just said that like, there is a logic, like they are actually being pretty rational because there's so, as you said, there's so many potential things that could wipe us out. It would just make sense to prepare for that moment. Or not even wipe us out, but just, I mean, just cause chaos. You know, the pandemic has caused chaos. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the election, right? We're, I mean, we're constantly, we're constantly facing all sorts of, of turmoil and, yeah, I came to feel like these preppers are 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 rationally responding to an irrational world. You know, things are things are complicated and frustrating and many of them felt, you know, helpless in being able to change any of this. You know, what what can they do about the climate crisis? What can they do about nuclear weapons? You know, it, it feels kind of hopeless and helpless. And so building a bunker for them was about taking control of their immediate parameters. You know, if you can at least control what's in what's in front of you and what's around you, then for many of them, it gave them a sense of peace. And so, yeah, I, I kind of, I was shocked how calm many of them were. I kind of expected them to be, as you say, kind of kooky and weird and paranoid. And that's not at all what I found. I, I, I found communities of people. And here I'm talking about the preppers themselves, not the people selling bunkers who are hysterical for the most part. But, you know, the preppers themselves that are moving into these communities and buying these bunkers are are just, you know, they're just everyday people doing jobs like you and me and they're and they're they're frustrated and they're they're scared, they're worried and they're trying to take control of what they can to give themselves and and their families a bit of peace. Have you become a prepper a little bit since the you finished this book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to be in Ireland right now, but I've ended up remote teaching because of the pandemic. And so I came back to California 
and I bought a quarter acre of land in the forest and I've got a fantastic internet connection out here, but everything's super cheap and I'm, I'm starting to stockpile just some basic stuff. I mean, I'm not, I'm not building a bunker or anything, but you know, I'm just gathering some tools, starting to do my own projects, learning how to do electrical wiring. I bought a, a 1972 GMC long bed pickup that I love. I've been working on that all the time. I mean, you know, these are things that I've been sitting in front of screens for 15 years, you know, writing books, doing research, being an academic. And for, you know, that was one of, one of the revelations that I came to from this project is I don't know how to do anything. So prepping for me is actually, I'm just building up skills and giving myself a little bit of space and breathing room to be able to do that. And I, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm finding it to be incredibly valuable. I can feel my confidence building with everything that I learn how to do. And that's enough preparation for me, just knowing that, you know, if something does go wrong, I've got a kind of basic skill set that can get me through some things. I don't, I don't necessarily feel a need to start pouring concrete, but maybe I'll get there one day. Maybe one day. Well, Bradley, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? My website's bradleygarrett.com. You can find me on social media. My handle is Goblin Merchant. So you can find me, Goblin Merchant, Twitter, Instagram, wherever. And you can find the book, Bunker, Building for the End Times, everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you want to find it. Hopefully go into a bookshop if you can, wherever you are. And I hope everyone enjoys it. I really enjoy getting feedback from it. So um, if anyone does pick it up and read it, shoot me an email. Well, Bradley Garrett, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brad, it's been great. Thank you so much, man. My guest today was Bradley Garrett. He's the author of the book, Bunker. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, bradleygarrett.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash bunker. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you all to listen to the Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.